It's very good for us to be together again. I want to commend you to the words of our brothers who have been up here already. Certainly the, the words of these songs that have us thinking about uh, the kingdom and specifically the king. We'll be talking about uh, his kingship in just a moment. Thank you for the words uh, of our suffering servant as well, uh, helping to remind us of what he's done for us and the worth that he has placed on us, the value that he saw in us. He was willing to give his own blood. Very uh, commendable thoughts as we think about who this king is that has laid a claim on us by his right, by redeeming us, by buying us back from, from sin. And so we'll be talking about this concept in just a moment. As our brother just read, the apostles were excited when Jesus was speaking to them about the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. They had sort of a wrong concept about this restoration of the kingdom, and they began to ask, Lord, is this when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And we'll talk about that wrong concept a bit, and some wrong concepts we may have and that we hear from the religious world around us and try to see them a little more clearly in the light of scriptures. I think it's interesting that Jesus doesn't actually respond to their question exactly. Uh, in verse 7, instead of just responding directly, he tells them what they need to be doing. They're about to go out preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, that's what he's going to send them out to. As we just looked in our uh, class on personal evangelism in Luke 24, he was sending them out to all the nations to preach repentance for forgiveness of sins. This is not just some restoration of a kingdom to Israel, his response really was, this is going out to the end of the earth. This kingdom is a kingdom that encompasses the entire world. And we'll look at that in just a moment here. So he doesn't exactly answer their question the way they were asking it, but he does tell them to be prepared. They're going to be preparing the world for this kingdom that's coming. About 10 days later, we know from Acts chapter 2, 3,000 souls heard the gospel that they began to preach, the gospel of the kingdom repented, and were baptized into God's kingdom. Acts chapter 2, verses 29 and following, it's interesting that what Peter is speaking about is a king. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David. The patriarch is an interesting use of, uh, of who David is. He is the king. He's the patriarchal king, if you will. He is dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. But being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. They preach the Christ as the king who was raised up to sit on Jesus' throne. In fact, in verse 36, his conclusion to that part of the sermon is, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord, that is King, and Christ, ruler and Christ. He's your master. Verses 40 and 41, with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. They accepted his lordship over them. That was the message that Peter was bringing. He is Lord and Christ. He's the one that was promised through David. He's the one that God raised up to sit on his throne. You put him to death, but God raised him up, and we're witnesses. He is now enthroned, and he is now king. That's what they began to preach in Acts chapter 2. But because of what they're saying here and what we, what we see clearly here, we often hear it said that the kingdom of God is the church, and vice versa. The church is the kingdom of God, or however uh, that's said. 
But in Hebrews chapter 12, we find out that there's a lot more to it than that. We've been called to join together with all of the saints, with all who are uh, uh, enrolled in the heavenly uh, sainthood, if you will. Starting at, uh, in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, I want to start at about verse, uh, got up there, verse 18. Uh, so we'll, we'll begin there. Hebrews 12, 18. You have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burn with fire and the blackness and darkness and tempest is a description of the kingdom that came out of Egypt. The sound of the trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. They could not endure what was commanded. So much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. So terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only earth, but also heaven. And here's the point. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of those things that are made, the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. There's a kingdom that we're receiving. We're becoming a part of a kingdom that began so long ago. It's not just that the church is the kingdom. The church is not exactly equal to the kingdom of God. It is merely a part of the kingdom of God. We are together with all of those saintly uh, servants of God who were called before and are part of His rule is the idea. We see that a little more clearly as we dig into some, some other texts. John 18, Jesus is before Pilate, and he's given an opportunity to, dis, to defend his kingship. Specifically, John 18, verses 33 and following. Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Jesus defended his kingship. Here's a man who is under the power of Roman authorities, about to be put to death by this Roman sub-governor, if you will. He's not the Caesar who's putting him to death. He's just a man who's got some entrusted power, and yet Jesus is declaring that he is the king in this situation. <laughs> but he says, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not just this physical kingdom that you see here. And yet, when he says, are you a king? He says, that's true. Yes, it is. <laughs> I was born for this. It is my birthright to be king. And those who are willing to hear and obey my voice, those are my subjects. <laughs> so it is a kingdom that's a little bit different than we might normally presume. 
Thayer's definition of this word kingdom that we find here in the New Testament describes royal power, kingship, dominion. I think perhaps the best word for it is really rule or, or dominion. Literally, the word kingdom means the king's dominion. We tend to think of kingdom as a place, but that's not the idea. It's not an actual kingdom in the sense of a located area, but it's the right or authority to rule over a kingdom. It's kingship. It's king dominion. And the dominion is given to those who say, I want to be a part of this kingdom. That's how it works. So the apostles did not go out and preach a place. They didn't go out and begin to preach the church. You need to be part of the church. You need to come to this kingdom, and once you come in, then you'll be a part of who's under this rule. That's not the idea. What they preached was a Lord, and they kept saying that the Lord is Jesus, that the Christ whom God would send is Jesus, and he's made him Lord of all. That's what was preached by Peter there in Acts chapter 2. Let everyone know, assuredly, that this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. In John chapter 4, Jesus speaking with the woman at the well said, the place is not important, (laughs) that it's not in Jerusalem or on this mountain where you're going to worship, but God is seeking those who will worship in spirit and truth, those who will submit to his rule, who will submit to the truth and will worship him spiritually rather than physically in a given place. So as the Lord is taught, as the king over a dominion is taught, those who submit to his rule become his people, become his king's dominion, become his church as a result, but a partial result. All of those in all time who have submitted to God's rule are part of this kingdom. Jesus is the king who came to, to take this and take possession of the kingdom in our day. So what happens sometimes in this thought that the apostles had in Acts chapter 1 is, well, the kingdom was lost to Babylon and Jesus is coming to restore it. I want you to consider the things from their perspective. (laughs) They've never seen Israel as a sovereign nation. You've got these Jews who love being Jews. They love being part of God's favored nation. And yet, they're under the thumb of Roman rule when Jesus comes. And they're excited that maybe the Davidic king has come and he's going to restore all things. But the truth is that God had left Israel even before the Babylonians came in. (laughs) Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 10, watched God leave the throne. This is before the temple was destroyed. The temple being his his presence, his his, assemble of his presence among them on his throne over the ark, over the cherubim there. Ezekiel chapter 10, verses 18 and 19, the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went out, the wheels were beside them, and they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them, leaving from the temple. God is saying through Ezekiel, I'm no longer with you. You're not not following my rule. You're not my subjects. You're no longer under my dominion, and so I'm going from you. And he did. In Ezekiel chapter 14, we find out the problem wasn't God's, it was Israel's. They had rejected him as Lord. They didn't want him to rule over them. Ezekiel 14, the first few verses there. Some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts, and put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. Should I let myself be inquired of at all by them? (laughs) They want me to be Lord when I can give them things, but they don't want to obey me, and so I've rejected them because they have rejected me. They've set up idols instead of following me. But Ezekiel prophesied in chapter 20 about a restoration 
to God's rule. And a restoration, really, that would include all who had rejected him as ruler. Ezekiel chapter 20, starting at verse 33. As I live, says the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with fury poured out, I will rule over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with fury poured out. He's going to judge the nations that have taken them into captivity, a place where he sent them, but which were dealing harshly with them, and God was preserving them through this wilderness and bringing them back to himself. And so he made promises that he would rule over them again, and he would show his strength to bring them to himself. So you think about in the days of Jesus, the men who were standing there who ended up crucifying him, and now these apostles who are excited that Jesus was crucified but came back to life. Now we've got a king who can't die. Surely now he's going to restore the kingdom to Israel. Physical Israel had lost the kingdom, the place of this world to the Babylonians, then to the Persians, then to the Greeks, then to the Romans. But true Israel would be restored to the rule of God. God had said so through Ezekiel and through other prophets. He's going to bring a day when he'll be restored, uh, they'll be restored to him. Jeremiah 31 speaks most clearly of this, I think. Jeremiah 31, starting at verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. I will write my law in their hearts. They will be obedient to me. They will submit to my rule from the heart. These will be my people. And in Romans 9, we really see the fulfillment of this spiritual Israel. Over and over in Romans 9, this concept of obeying from the heart. In Romans 10, we get the same thing. But here is the Israel that he's speaking of. Romans chapter 9, starting at verse 6. It is not that the word of God has taken no effect. They are not all Israel who are of Israel. Just because they're physically of a lineage doesn't make them under his rule. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. Those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed, and the concept is there, the ones who enter in by accepting the promises of God and submitting to his rule based on promise. Those are the ones who come in. So it's not just a restoration of some physical kingdom as the, as the apostles were seeing it, and so often as maybe we have this concept, this physical aspect, the church is his kingdom. We need to see something much bigger than that. So was the kingdom lost to Babylon? That's the concept the apostles brought up. No, it was really lost way before that when they rejected God from being their ruler. In fact, so much before that that even David was talking about it in Psalm 110. So we're sort of walking backward through time to see this concept, if you will. So in Psalm 110, before the, uh, the captivity, before even the first captivity of the northern kingdom, David was writing this way. We'll read the first three verses here. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. 
Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning you have the dew of your youth. It's a psalm that's celebrating the Messiah as king. He's going to be on this throne. Also, when you get to verse 4, he's celebrating him as a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. This is all before the law at this point, because uh, Melchizedek was before the law. This is a shocking thing to consider a king and a priest according to the law, but that's what David is talking about. Hebrews chapter 7 makes the argument that he could not be a priest according to the law because he comes from Judah and not from Levi. So what is David talking about? It was a subject of debate among the scholars in Jesus' day. In the psalm, David calls the Messiah Lord. He calls him king, even though he knows he is his son. That's because of a promise that was given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And this is a promise of kingship. This is a promise of the rule of God coming always through David's line. And that is who the Christ comes through. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, we know the, the story. David wants to build a house for God, and God says, no, I'm going to build a house of you. Uh, I'm not going to let you build the temple because you're a man of war, but I'm going to build a house in you. 2 Samuel 7, verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. That's the promise he's reminding of in Psalm 110, that this throne would be established forever and that he would become a priest forever on that throne. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus begins to ask about this particular psalm. Whose son is the Christ? And they say, David's, according to this promise. Then how is it that he calls him Lord if he's his son? It's one of those interesting prophecies that has a dual fulfillment. Many of them do. David is the only king of the Judah lineage in the south that actually called his son Lord. Most of the time, the next king came along when the first king died. But because one of David's sons was trying to abdicate the throne before David was even dead, David himself set up Solomon as the next king and for a short time would have had to call him Lord, which is very unusual for the son, for the father to call the son Lord. But in this case, Solomon was king and David must defer to him as Lord, as king. Then, of course, very clearly later, the one who comes along from David's body, according to the promise, his son, Jesus the Christ, of course, David is calling Lord in the sense of the kingdom in its, in its grandest sense now. Jesus is Lord. But the, there was debate among the scholars in Jesus' day. How, they didn't understand that. How is it possible that David would call him Lord if he's his son? And the only true way is if the Messiah is before David was. That is proof of his uh, deity, proof of his prior to the physical lineage, his spiritual. So the truth that comes out in David is that the Lord is actually before David. The kingship, the rule of God actually is before there was a physical kingship at all. It's not that it was lost to Babylon. Something happened before that. Even in the text when David is receiving his promise, God says, well, I've already removed the kingdom from Saul. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, we get the sad uh, account of Saul losing the kingdom because of his disobedience to God. He's been set up as God's king. 
And God would have made a dynasty out of him. But, but Saul was unwilling to yield to the Lord. 1 Samuel 15, verses 10 and 11. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. Verses 22 and 23, when Samuel finally goes to tell Saul that the kingship's being removed, Samuel said, As the Lord has great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord, that's his dominion, it's through his voice as he commands, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as, as, is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Saul was rejected from being king. The kingdom was taken away already in Saul. He'd been rebellious, wasn't listening to God. He was not allowing God to have dominion over him. Later in 1 Chronicles, we find out he even consults the counsel of a medium, which he has been told by God to get rid of all the mediums. He goes to a medium to consult uh, the counsel there. He has turned so far from God in his heart. But I want you to understand that it was rejected before that. The kingdom of God was rejected before that because before Saul was rejected as king, God was rejected as king. In fact, the kingdom of God was rejected in their asking for a king in the first place. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, the name of his second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you're old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people and all they say to you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. The kingdom of God was rejected in Saul. <laughs> then Saul rejected the kingship of God and his kingdom was taken away and it was handed over to David and a promise was made that through David the kingly line would continue forward forever. But God had been rejected as king from early on. God's kingdom had been rejected in Saul. But the truth is, rejected even before that. <laughs> in Exodus chapter 19, we see God's desire Israel as he brings them out of Egypt. And something he mentioned there in 1 Samuel 8. First, uh, Exodus 19, verses 1 through 6. In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they had departed from Rephidim, had come to the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain, and Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Notice he didn't say, you will be kings. <laughs> you will be a kingdom 
of priests and a holy nation. You'll be under my rule, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. That's what God desired as he brought them out from Egypt, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God was their king. That's how they became this kingdom. (laughs) He was their king before Saul, David, or anybody else. And if they would simply obey his voice, then they would be under his rule. That's exactly what Jesus said in John 18. Those who are under my rule are the ones who hear me and obey my voice. (laughs) That's how I'm king. What we find is that God's desire truly is fulfilled in Christ. In 1 Peter 2, this concept of becoming this nation of priests, of being these holy servants of God. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5, and also verses 9 and 10, we are called before Him to offer up sacrifices that are pleasing to Him. We have become this special nation as Christians that He was looking for. I want to read verses 9 and 10 in 1 Peter 2. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. He's speaking to people who have put themselves under the rule of Christ. In fact, in 1 Peter 3 and verse 15, he says that they should sanctify the Lord as God in their hearts, or sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, as it is put in the New American Standard. That's the concept. You set Christ apart as the one who rules over your heart. And that's what makes you part of his kingdom. So God's kingdom is truly fulfilled. This desire for a kingdom is truly fulfilled in Christ because God's desire is to be the king, the one who rules in our lives. Why did he have to do that with the nation of Israel in that way? Well, because he had already been rejected from being the ruler from before that. In Genesis chapter 17, as God calls to Abraham, and he's already made a prior calling, but he comes to Abraham in Genesis 17, and he says some interesting things there about this concept of rule in his life. Genesis 17, 1 through 8, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also I give to your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Over and over, this concept of God ruling in the life of Abraham and his descendants. And the point of this is, God is desiring to rule over them before there's ever a nation. It's not that he wanted a group of people in a specific location. He wants to rule in the hearts of Abraham and all of his descendants. He wants Abraham to trust him and to walk before him and to be blameless. And if he'll do that, then God will bless him with all of these great things because he is submitting to the rule of God in his life, which then brings about the blessing. This blessing depended on the obedience of Abraham. If you want these things that are part of my kingdom, you must submit to me. The truth is that God wants to bless us through our obedience to him. It's transformative. It changes us into who we need to be 
to be able to be in his presence. And that's what he was teaching to Abraham. But his rule was rejected before there was ever any nations. The question the apostles are asking, are you going to restore the kingdom? They're thinking physically still. That rule had been rejected. Absolutely, he came to restore the kingdom. But how? Through the preaching of this word that he's sending them out to preach, the gospel of the kingdom, to bring people's hearts back to him and to bring people back under his rule. The truth is, the rejection happened before Abraham came along. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 11, when God comes to Adam and Eve in the garden, the question he asks shows that they've rejected his rule. Did you eat from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, do not eat thereof? What have you done? You've said, I know better than you, God. I'm going to eat from this tree. Anytime we sin, though we don't say it outwardly, we're saying, in this particular matter, I know better than God. In this particular matter, I'm not going to submit. I'm going to do what I choose to do. And you're rejecting the rule of God. That's the issue when it comes to sin. You're rejecting Christ as Lord in our our day. So God's rule was really rejected early on. Turn with me now to Luke chapter 17. Verses 20 and 21 there. When he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. The Pharisees, just like the rest of the Jews, just like so many of us in our day, are limited in our thinking about what the kingdom is. They're thinking of a physical kingdom. Where is it? Show us, Lord. Show us where the kingdom is. Show us who the king is going to be. And he'd been doing that. When and where will the kingdom come? And he says, it's not going to come by observation. What are you looking for as you're looking for the kingdom of God? Are you trying to find the right church? Are you trying to find the right group of people so you'll know and feel and be certain that you're in the kingdom of God? That's not going to help. The kingdom of God is within you. And as Jesus told uh, Pilate, It's those who hear the truth and obey it that become part of the kingdom of truth. As Paul would write later to the Philippians, and I think this is exactly the description of of, uh, this concept of submitting to the king's rule. Look at what Paul is stating here. He starts it in verse 5, and it it deals with uh, something internal, a change of mind. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He set the example who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. As a man, he submitted to God's will, even to death on the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what God was looking for as he sent Jesus to be his Christ. Those who would submit in perfect obedience as he did, those who would give themselves to him to rule over their lives. The kingdom of God is within you. So as you look at this history, sort of in reverse order, in Acts chapter 1, the apostles are asking sort of the question in the wrong way. <laughs> Is this the time you're going to restore this kingdom in a physical way to Israel? And they were excited about that. 
Jesus didn't really answer their question. He said, you, you're going to help me in what's going on, but you need to be ready to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And he sent them out to their work, and he said they would preach it to the ends of the earth. This is not something just in Israel. It's not something just for this locality. It's something that's everywhere there are men's hearts. That's why the preaching must go out to everywhere there are men's hearts. My rule is not of this world. My rule is in the hearts of men who just happen to be in this world. The kingdom was not just lost at Babylon, and we're going to try to bring it back and restore things. So many today are waiting for Jesus to restore his kingship in Jerusalem. There are so many who claim to be Christians who are just waiting for that moment to happen so the temple can be rebuilt and Jesus can come and reign for the thousand years. If he's not reigning now in your heart, those thousand years aren't going to make a bit of difference to you. Jesus is reigning now and has been since the day that he resurrected and his message began to go out to men's hearts. God's desire has always been to be the king. Before there was ever a kingdom of Israel, God was ruling in the hearts of men. He called Abraham to follow and be obedient. He had called to Adam and Eve, and every generation has in some way rejected his rule. But in Christ, he has come back. He sent the message of the gospel of the kingdom, the good news that God is willing to forgive those who have rejected him and to restore them to fellowship with him as their king. The kingdom of God is within you. So Jesus came to restore the kingdom. That is, if we understand properly, the rule of God in the hearts of those who obey him. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 9 has become the savior, the author of salvation for all those who obey him. How? Because he is their Lord. He's their king. And he'll restore everything that was lost in Adam. I want to finish with this text in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. Verses 20 through 28. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ that is coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all and all. What is God effecting in Christ? A restoration of all that was lost when Adam and Eve rejected the rule of God. Eternal life in his presence, they were cast out of the garden, they were sent out to till the earth, and death began to reign from Adam. That's Paul's argument here and in Romans as well. But God set about to restore all that was lost in Christ. <laughs> Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom? Absolutely. But not just to Israel, to all the nations of the earth, everywhere where men's hearts will submit to the rule of Christ, the kingdom is restored. His power and his rule and his authority are seen today in his church, but it's so much bigger than that. It's so much more. All the faithful and obedient who ever lived are called the kingdom of God. And you can be a part of that as well. Are you living obediently under his rule? <laughs> he calls to you through the gospel. He has set his king on the throne, and he has given assurance by raising him from the dead that he is the king eternal. He's the king that was promised before. He is the Christ and the Lord. Would you sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart 
this day. That's our desire in our preaching. We've been talking about that in our personal evangelism class. Our desire is to bring people under the rule of God. People who have been blinded by the God of this world, by Satan, the one who is trying to, to get us to fall for lesser things, to make our kingdom something more physical, something with immediate rewards rather than the, rather than the, the eternal reward that God is offering of life in his presence. If we can help you today to make Christ sanctified as Lord in your heart, we want to do that. If you're already a Christian and struggling to obey his rule, we want to help you by holding your hands up and encouraging you, by rebuking you if that's what you need, helping you to repent so you can serve. But if you're not a Christian, we want so much for Christ to be ruling, sitting enthroned in your heart. We want you to sanctify Christ as Lord. If you're willing to confess that he is the Son of God, that he is the Lord and Christ that God had sent, willing to repentantly be baptized into him. We want to help you do that today. You can begin to walk in a new life with him as your Lord and King. Songs we've been singing have been encouraging us to think about that. Just a moment, we're going to sing a song to encourage your obedience and your submission to his rule. Won't you come to him now while we stand and sing?